Welcome to the Iron Women Podcast. I'm Alyssa Gadeski, and usually I'm here with my co-host, Haley Chura, but we are on summer break, so instead of hearing from us this week, you will hear an episode of the new and limited Feisty Media Title IX series. You can listen to the full series called Nine, Voices for Title IX, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. So it was really exciting to be a part of a program that where they said yes to women before it was cool to say yes to women. We don't want what Julie did to turn this into a freak show, freak show, freak show. Some people I'm sure had funny feelings about it. I know the men did. I didn't really care. It's not, you know, about skin color and, you know, all these other socioeconomic differences. You want your team to win. I'm Celine Yeager. I'm Sarah Gross. This is Nine, Voices for Title Nine, powered by Inside Tracker. A podcast that tells the stories behind the law that changed everything. This is Nine. 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 Hey, Sarah. Hey, Celine. How are you? I am doing great. I'm, oh, I loved this week's interview. I did too. I did too. Uh, this one, we have Joan Cronin this week, who I really didn't know the name when this came up. I'll have to admit that because I'm not much of a basketball person. Mm. You know, I'm not much of that kind of a ball sport person, men or women, honestly, for basketball. But wow, of course I knew who Pat Summit is, you know, and that <laughs> was somebody who, you know, answered to Joan Cronin. And, and but Joan Cronin, um, she was, well, she's currently the athletic director of the University of Tennessee, and she was the first female athletic director ever there. And, uh, you know, she has been there for 29 years and has overseen 10 Tennessee women team NCAA championships. And she has been inducted herself into seven halls of fame, and which is seven. just like seven <laughs> Like mind blown. Yeah, because yeah, she also was part of, and you'll hear that in the show, you know, other sports. It wasn't like when she first came on board, you know, volleyball and other sports. Yes. Um, but wow, I mean, she was just, she was just a woman who uh, really, really saw the mission of Title IX and mm-hmm. was, was made it her destiny to fulfill it. So it was super cool. And, and Catherine did a great job talking to her. Yeah. Yes, she absolutely did. So Catherine Taylor, who's our interviewer, uh, many, many will know her as the host of Girls Gone Gravel. She's also the founder of the Girls Gone Gravel brand and Gone Gravel in the events that we had this year. Uh, She's a triathlete turned gravel cyclist. And I didn't know this, that she was such a widely published author as well. But what I did... (laughs) I should know this. I work with Catherine every single day. Um, she's our chief of staff here at Feisty Media. She organizes all the things and she takes all of my my airy-fairy craziness and puts it into action. Um, so she did a really great interview. And I think, you know, with Joan, uh, a lot of these, well, a lot of the other interviews or some of the other interviews, I should say, are more storytelling and we get to hear like we heard from Bobby for example or next week we'll hear from Marianne like their stories as athletes at the time yeah you know um which is like super valuable and I love those stories too but here with Joan sort of like you said like we get to hear 
you know, someone who really like understood the ins and outs of the law, what was happening, what was changing, um, what she thought needed to change and was just involved in that change making every day. Yeah. Like literally applying it, like literally Mm -hmm. like knowing, okay, title nine says, you know, when you have X number of scholarships, you know, per capita at your university for men, you need to have them in women. And what does that look like? And how do we do it? But what I really, really, really loved about her approach to everything is, you know, she, she actually sort of, I could tell it sort of bothered her that there had to be a law to do the right thing, that there had to be a law Mm -hmm. to make this happen. Right. But Mm -hmm. she, but then she was like, okay, there is this law, but I am going to prove that this is all like, um, that is as, as it should be. We are going to fill these seats where, you know, people do want to see women and, you know, she just, she, she wanted to earn it. You know, she wanted mm-hmm. to earn that, that what that law was providing. And she a hundred percent went above and beyond doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that too. I love how she set out to fill, like to fill the stadium for the women's team. Mm-hmm. So these are like, this is not a, this is not a story that happened yesterday, filling stadiums for women's teams. Like we're, you know, it's easy to imagine kind of now with everything that's happened since with the WNBA, but like she, you know, she was filling seats in NCAA basketball, women's basketball way before people even thought that was possible. And she's, she's very optimistic about title nine today still, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, when, when she gets asked if it's working, you know, she says, yes. Because when she talks to family, they, they tell how great their daughters and granddaughters are doing in sport, you know? Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So we could talk about how cool it is all day yeah, long. Yeah. Yeah. We'll but, let people hear it. <laughs> but let's hear from our sponsors and then we'll hear from Catherine and Joan. Okay, friends. I am so excited to be talking to Joan Cronin today for our Title IX podcast series. Hi, Joan. It's great to be here from Tacoma to Knoxville. I know we have Knoxville, Tennessee in common. It's really exciting. You've spent a lot more time there than I did. I was only there for a couple of years for grad school. But it was it was a good grad school, wasn't it? It was a good grad school and it was a fun time to be there because the football team won the national championship. While I was you there, brought us good luck. I did. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I could tell you a funny story about that uh, later on in the podcast recording, but you've been the athletic director at uh, women's athletic director at Tennessee for 25 years. Is that correct? It's close to 30, uh, oh three goodness. decades, three <laughs> decades. And uh, so it's been real, really an exciting, I get told by a lot of people, Joan, you had a great career, but really I had a great journey and the journey started when I was 12 years old. I grew up in South Louisiana. I am a Cajun with orange blood. And uh, at 12, I went down to try out for Little League Baseball. And I was better than the little boys in the backyard. Our house connected to the park. So I took my bat and glove and went to play baseball. And they wouldn't let me play. And I knew at 12 that I wanted to be in a business that helped women learn to compete. So fast forward many years. This, this lady gets really excited when I see all the great competitions, all, all the games on televisions, the great athletes, the Olympics, all of that for women makes me excited. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's crazy that you lived in an era where you were told you couldn't play in Little mm-hmm. League. Uh, yeah, I, had the, I had the privilege of being inducted into the LSU Hall of Fame and friends say, well, Joan, what sport did you do? 
And I said, well, I was intramural ping pong and tennis champion because they had no sports for women. Graduating from high school, I was a pretty good basketball player. I played tennis, volleyball, and basketball. Would have loved to have played college ball at that time. There were only a couple of schools offering college sports for women. So it really was, I was before the time, but yet had the great privilege of being in the journey as the sports developed. Do you mind telling us uh, when you graduated from college? I don't. Uh, that's uh, the 1966. 1966. So as we know from the series, Title IX was passed in 1972. So, um, and you were coaching basketball at Tennessee from 68 to 73. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, it is. And that, that was an interesting time of my, uh, again, I knew what I wanted to do at 12. And for some reason, I knew I wanted to be an AD, but at that time, all the athletic directors had been coaches before. That was kind of the, the, the uh, travel journey to get to be an athletic director. So when I graduated from LSU, I went back and coached uh, a half a year at my high school, home high school. We won a state championship. I was just the assistant coach, but I'll, I'll take credit for it. And then uh, went to get my master's at LSU and, you know, we didn't have sports medicine management programs and all of that then. So I got a degree, an undergraduate degree in math and in physical education and got a, a master's in supervision. So I was ready to, to, to join the world. And uh, my late husband wanted to get a degree in exercise physiology. We went to Northwestern Louisiana in Natchitoches, Louisiana. And, um, I actually coached volleyball, basketball, and tennis there and taught full-time, just an easy job. And then came, he wanted to get his doctorate. So Tennessee at that time was one of the schools that was the bet, one of the best exercise physiology programs in the country. So we came to Knoxville, coming from Louisiana to Knoxville, I thought I was coming to Yankee land. It was really North and gonna be cold. And I sent a little letter and said, I'd like to teach and coach women's basketball. So to show you how important it was, I got a letter back and said I was hired. So it wasn't a high priority job. And, um, but you know, our budget was $1,500. I think they paid me $1,500 to coach. And, but it was, it was, it was a start. We were laying the groundwork at that time. Interesting, I get, I get credit. A lot of people say, oh, Joan, you hired Pat Summit. I didn't, she, she was hired between my coaching and, and hers, there was one other coach. And, uh, but I kept her. So that was kind of good to keep her for three decades. And, uh, but I didn't hire her. But um, if many people know the Lady Ball logo and what it stands for, well, I was privileged to put the blue in the Lady Ball logo because we, uh, not many people were playing sports. So I got ready to order uniforms with my $1,500 budget. And I could get white uniforms with orange letters, but nobody was making Tennessee orange women's uniforms. So I sat in the basement of alumni gym. I didn't get anybody's permission. I didn't do a marketing study. I just said, Joan, what color do you think looks good with orange and white? And I said, Carolina blue. So that Carolina blue has stayed since 1968 with the Lady Balls, and I'm, I'm proud of that. But I coached women's basketball. We were club sport. We were a good team, not a great team. But the interesting thing was the first year we were three on three basketball. The next year we played what they call the Rover, 
which was two players who played the whole court and a forward, two forwards and two guards. And then the next year, which I went on to coach at the College of Charleston, we played five-person basketball. So it was really a transition of, of styles and coaching. And so I learned a lot about being flexible. But um, it was a gr great experience. I got to lay the groundwork of what, what would become the Lady Vols at Tennessee. Went to the College of Charleston, and Catherine and I went, and I had a two-week-old daughter who is a Title IX uh, baby. She was born in 1972, and then I had a 17-month-old daughter. So I was just trying to juggle life. And when we got to Charleston, my husband took a job at the Citadel, and I knew I still had that passion. I wanted to make a difference in women's athletics. So I made a cold call to the president of the College of Charleston, and I said, you need to have women's athletics. And I was either really good or really bad. I'm not sure which one. But I walked out of his office. I was volleyball coach. I was basketball coach. I was tennis coach. And I was AD. And I had a two-week-old at home. So, uh, you know, it was, it was really interesting. And so I had the privilege of really starting the College of Charleston program. And 10 years later, fortunately, we were named one of the number one pro We were named the number one program in America. And I hired great people. And that's, that's, that's the way to succeed. And then Tennessee called and said, would you come back and be our athletic director? So that's kind of the journey to get to be athletic director at Tennessee. And what a journey we had at Tennessee. The opportunity to work with the Pat Summit, the opportunity to work with the Terry Crawford, who was a track coach at that time. and went on to be the Olympic coach. I got to hire the entire staff. So it was really exciting to be a part of a program that where they said yes to women before it was cool to say yes to women. Wow. You have had quite a journey. And I, I want to step back a little bit to that first time at Tennessee. Uh, well, maybe even a little before that. And just what did you have a sense like? the things that I'm doing can help shape the future of women's sports, right. From being told I can't play in the little league to I'm going to, I'm going to reach out and say, do you need a coach? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I would like to say that I had this vision, but I knew that it could happen. And I knew we were on the, on the, on the cuffs there of making women important in athletics. And uh, so I, I really got involved. I got excited about what we might be able to do. I knew we had to develop a product and then we had to sell it. And as athletic director at Tennessee, you know, one of my goals was always not just always say, have a handout and say, you have to give us this. I wanted to earn part of the way. So one of the things that I'm proudest of is we led the country in attendance. We sold more tickets. We raised more money because I thought that was important. Title nine to say the law, you had to have it, but I wanted to have, I just didn't want to, live off football or live off men's athletics. I wanted women to be important. And I felt like if we could raise money, if we could sell tickets, that would be an impact. You know, I get asked a lot, you know, cause I've had a long career and a great, great journey. What, what's your favorite moment? You know, I guess as you get old, people want to see what's your memory. And, you know, people expect me to say, well, we won this championship here or this championship there. But truly, it's, it's interesting because of my vision of women's athletics being bigger than just a game and making a difference. One of my favorite memories was it was our first national championship. It was in Austin, Texas. But I remember riding up in the bus 
to go play the championship game. And on the billboard, it said, women's basketball final four sold out. And that excited me because, you know, we had reached the level that the game was sold out. Now, I am very competitive. So fast forward about three or four years later, we had a chance to host the final four in Knoxville. So, of course, I wanted to beat Texas record. We had a bigger gym than they did. So um, and we had been to many final fours at that stage. And so I wanted to beat their record. And um, unfortunately, Virginia uninvited us in the, uh, the, the regional finals. They beat us in triple overtime. So I was expecting for us to be in the final four in Tennessee and us to lead the country in attendance. Well, we weren't in it. So I was worried about who's going to come. You know, uh, I've sold all these tickets. Who's going to come? Well, that night, 22,000 people showed up to watch. It was Auburn and Stanford and Virginia, and they watched to watch them, and I knew we had arrived again. People were coming to watch women's athletics, not just necessarily to watch the Lady Balls play. So that was another step that I really remember because it was important. One of my goals it was to endow as many of our scholarships as we could so people were investing in us. They weren't just coming to a game, but they were investing in us, and so I spent a lot of time raising money for women's athletics. Yeah, that's really smart because one of the biggest arguments we always hear, especially from men, right, is women's, women's sports just don't make as much money. So that's why we shouldn't put it on TV or. Yeah. With the television contracts and everything that's coming out. And I think they've shown it with the, uh, with the thing with the NCA now, how they changed the championships, even from last year to this year. To, uh, to make make them equal and the television contracts should be negotiated. You know, we're getting ready. We're in the midst of softball and baseball right now. When you get to the World Series in the fa- past few years, women's softball World Series has had a higher television ranking than baseball. So people do enjoy women's sports. And yeah. I, that, was, that was my goal, not to just have a game, but also to get people that are really involved. But, you know, I got into the business because I think you learn so much from sport. It's not just a game. It's, it's all the lessons that you learn. In fact, I wrote a book. It's called Sport is Life with the Volume Turned Up. And it's about the lessons you learn from sport that help you in life and in business. Because you can't listen to any business lecture that within the first five minutes, they don't use a sports terminology. You can't listen to anybody talk about history that they don't talk about who competed against who and, and what, who, what happens in that realm of the world. So it wasn't fair that guys were getting all this advantage, I thought, in learning about sport, learning how to be a teammate, learning the adjustment. And the reason I put with the volume turned up is that when you think about, let's just take a basketball game, a two-hour basketball game. During that two hours, you change offenses, you change defenses, you have to pat somebody on the back, you have to kick them in the rear, you have to work with players, you have to substitute. All those things happen in a short period of time, and then you know immediately if you won or you lost. So I just think it's a great way to teach people to be successful. In fact, I uh, 
would, if I was giving you a, a sermon, I would tell you that to be successful, you need three C's in your life. You need to learn how to compete. You need to learn how to communicate. And you need to have confidence in what you're doing. And I think you combine that with having a passion and having the right people, then I think you, you're built for success. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, well, I want to just like kind of take a minute back to that time and around 1972. So you had very small children. So <laughs> yes. life was hectic. But just tell us a little bit, what was the vibe like? Did that change things when Title IX was passed? Or was it like, well, we'll see, like, kind of take us back to that, that year. Yeah, sure. Well, 68 to 72, I was the basketball coach at Tennessee. Starting in 73, I was the basketball coach at the College of Charleston. And, you know, we all knew things were moving and we all knew they were going to be different, but I'm not sure any of us realized how different. We hoped and we dreamed. You know, I can remember I, I did some lobbying and uh, going to D.C. with some of the senators and congressmen talking about the importance of passing that bill because sports had been a male-dominated privilege. And all of a sudden, we're trying to change that. And uh, so I think we all dreamed that today might happen. Uh, but I'm not sure any of us really said, man, this 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 is it. You know, I can remember thinking, I hate to ha we have to have a law to do what's right. But it was such a male dominated area. We did have to have a law. And uh, I say now I get asked almost every day, Joan, do you think Title IX is working? And my answer is yes. And I don't have to do a survey. I don't have to do a study. All I have to do is get on an airplane. If I'm sitting next to especially a gentleman or a couple, and I introduce myself, you know, I'm Joan Cronin, I'm women's athletic director at Tennessee or athletic director emeritus now, which means that I'm old and all of those kind of things. But uh, as athletic director, if I say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm athletic director emeritus at the University of Tennessee, they usually smile. And the next words out of their mouth are, I have a daughter and I have a granddaughter who, and they go on to describe the athletic ability of their daughters and their granddaughter. Just like if I talked to your parents, they would tell me about you being a triathlete because they're proud and they're proud of those opportunities. And so if we have moms and dads and grandmoms and granddads just as proud of their daughters as they are their sons, Title IX is working. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, obviously that one law didn't change everything overnight. Tell us a little bit about um, like the work that, had to go on from there to see change yeah. happen. Well, I think, you know, a lot of us were in the trenches. Uh, we were, as I said, I was very fortunate when I came back to the University of Tennessee. Um, you know, they were, we, we, we had Pat Summit there. We were beginning to succeed. But an interesting thing, when I came in, we were building our new arena. And um, I asked about playing in the new arena. And Pat and the chancellor and the president all said no the women are going to keep the old arena. And Pat wanted the old arena because she would never have to worry about the men and scheduling practices and all that. It would just, just be hers. And I said, if they wanted me to come as athletic director, we had to play in the new arena because I felt like you only get that one chance to make a good first impression. And we were building the largest arena in America. 
just happened to have a thousand more seats in Kentucky. Not that we were being competitive or anything. Not that like Tennessee that. does that with any other yeah. <laughs> stadiums. And, or... and they, uh, so, you know, I convinced them that I should be AD and that we should play in the new arena. So we added a, a, a locker room on, for, it was already in construction. They didn't even have a women's locker room in there. So we had to add a women's locker room and, the first game we played Texas, we sold out, we lost, and Pat was so mad she kicked him out of our locker room for about a week or two until they realized how lucky they were to come back and play again. But, you know, I can remember that day when with a sold-out arena, opening up in a new arena, we had people standing in line outside for blocks. And I, I went and grabbed a bunch of tickets for the next three games and went out and personally hand did each person that was in line that wasn't going to get in a ticket for the next game and invited them to come come back because it wasn't only important for us to win that to be at that first game but to continue and one of the nicest notes I ever got from Coach Summit was just just simply said you were right I'm glad we're playing in Thompson Bowling Arena and if people so we have a lot of endurance athletes on this podcast if they don't know who Pat Summit is I mean. I know because I did go to Tennessee and was yeah. part of the SEC, but uh, tell us about her and why she was so important. Do you think in collegiate, sport? you know, I, I think Pat summit is probably the best icon for women, especially in women's basketball that that's ever been. And, and she's an icon, not only because she won eight national championships, not only that she was the winningest coach in America, but she was an icon because she loved the game and she had that passion for the game. One of the things that if she was sitting in, and unfortunately some of the listeners don't know, Pat died about five years ago of Alzheimer's and um, she, uh, but when she was coaching and her drive there, one of the things that she always wanted to do, she would come in and say, Joan, can we do this? We, we played on ship's decks. We played back to back. We played midnight games. And her answer to me was, uh, and I would say, well, why do you want to do this? And her answer to me was always, it's for the good of the game. And she was willing to do whatever it took for the good of the game to help women's athletics succeed. When, when uh, Pat passed away, we had a celebration of life in Thompson Bowling Arena. And um, she had coached for, for over 40 years. 96% of the players that she coached came back to that celebration of life. And I, I gathered them all together in a huddle before we went out for the service. And I told them never in their lifetime or my lifetime would we know anybody who had won more awards and, got, and been more successful in the world of sports than Pat Summit. But more important than that, we would probably not know anybody that was more humble than Pat Summit. And I think that's what, what made it really special. If she was on this podcast today and you ask her what she was most proud of, she would tell you that every student athlete that she coached who played for her for four years graduated. So she truly was an advocate of the student athlete. I tell people in Tennessee, there, there are three people in the state of Tennessee that don't need a last name. One of them is Dolly Parton. The other is Peyton Manning and the third is Pat Summit. And uh, I think they're all, all successful for lots of reasons. I always say Dolly is successful because she gives back so much. Peyton is successful because his attention to detail is incredible. 
I've never known an athlete in all my years of being an athletic director who watched more film and was better prepared. And then again with Pat Summit, I've never known anybody so successful that was willing to be as humble as she was and help anybody along the way. Yeah. I love the narrative there though of uh, how you built each other up, right? That you were pushing her to yeah. do things like play in the arena. She was, you know, building this powerhouse team. She was really, it's just mm-hmm. this narrative of if women are for women, what we can accomplish. Yes, you know, ab- absolutely. I, you know, I think um, one of the things that I, I loved, uh, I, I always looked at my job as an athletic director was to make the coach's job the best it could be to make the athlete's experience the best it can be. So that's what I spent my day in and out, help not only helping Pat coach basketball, but Carrie Winkley and coaching softball. We had just some great, great coaches and a large number of them were female, which I was extremely proud of their success. But I do believe that um, women need to, to help women. I, I usually get the question of Joan, how many meetings did you go that you were the only woman in a room? And there was lots of them. There were lots of them. And, uh, and, you know, I think to be successful, and if you're going to be the only women in the room, you need to prepare where there can be other women in the room down the line. And so I always felt like when I went in the room, I wanted to be more prepared than anybody else because I wanted them to want other women come in the room. And Catherine, every day I get an announcement about this woman got to be an athletic director at this school. And, and I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. And to see those opportunities growing and growing and growing. Of course, I got asked a lot about could Pat Summit coach the men's team? And my answer was absolutely she could coach the men's team. I didn't worry about that. And what she would say was, I don't, I don't want a demotion. I like coaching the women. <laughs> so, uh, we, we loved, loved what we, we got to do and how we got to do it. But, you know, backing up, I just don't think it would have happened without Title IX. I think we needed the law to make it happen. But it was important for us to take that law and, and grow from it and not just live. You know, I was not one of these that would be leading the parade and burning the bras and everything. I wanted to earn my way. I wanted them to want us to be a part of the team. And sometimes, um, you know, you had to take your stand, but sometimes even just being reasonable, being prepared, and sometimes using humor was a part of it too. I remember as we were expanding Pat's locker room and making it better and making it equal to the men, uh, I was taking over one of our visiting locker rooms to do that. And I had a a counterpart in uh, men's athletics who made a, a comment that said, she will get that locker room over my dead body and talk me being the she. And so I could have done a lot of things. I could have run to the president's office and said, this is not fair. We have to have it. The law says that, you know, I could have done a lot of things, but as soon as I heard that, and it was pretty quickly after he said it, we didn't need AT&T, you know, you you all, you hear all of those rumors. And so I walked in my office and I picked up my phone and I called him and I simply said, when am I going to your funeral? Because he had said, and there was dead silence on the other side. He started laughing. I started laughing. I said, come on down to the office. Let me show you what I think we can do. And we got it done. Yeah. So sometimes it doesn't take burning a bra and leading a, a, a parade 
but sometimes it just takes good common sense. Yeah. I love that story. Well, <laughs> I, I think like that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this series, right? Because when you look back, like looking at life right now, it can seem like, oh yeah, women have come so far, but you don't understand all the work and all those mm-hmm. like little conversations and relationships and all the pieces that it took to get there. Um, and so- Absolutely. You know, uh, when I think about you, you talking about growing and uh, making things happen, when I was volleyball coach, basketball coach, tennis coach, and AD at the College of Charleston the first year, we qualified for regionals. And it was at University of Tennessee Martin, which if you know anything about geography, it's a long, long way, way away. from Charleston <laughs> to Martin. Yeah. And you have to come across the mountains. And they didn't have interstates at that time. And I had no money in a budget trying to to do. I rented a yellow school bus and I personally drove a yellow school bus from Charleston to Martin. Oh my gosh. One of my coaches did that today. I'd shoot him because I mean the liability, you know, just, but you did what you had to do because I wanted those girls that earned the right to go to regionals and I wanted them to be there. So uh, I think those things are important. Yeah. It's uh, easy often for us to see women's basketball as the success, right? Because it is one of the most visible sports, but tell us a little bit about how you've been able to advocate for other women's sports at Tennessee and help Mm. those grow. Absolutely. One of the things, and and I hate to say this in a title nine podcast, but when, when I got the uh, job at Tennessee, we had seven sports for women and the men had uh, nine. So we, according to the law, we needed to add more sports. But I didn't go out publicly and say it, but I told our coaches, I'm not going to add another sport until I get you funded in the top 10 in the country. I wanted each sport to have a budget that was because I was expecting them to be in the top 10 in the country. So I wanted their budget to be I wanted the tennis coach to have a top 10 budget. I wanted they weren't all the same, but I wanted them to compare to their peers be have the top 10. And as soon as we did that. We added golf, we added softball, we added rowing, and we added soccer. And each of them for a different reason, golf, I immediately got the, uh, all their scholarships endowed because I knew that I, I knew enough, enough female doctor, golfers that I could get that done. We added softball because it was one of the faster growing sports and we had a great, the state had a great uh, uh, softball history. Soccer was the fastest growing sport for women at that time. So it made sense. And then I looked out my window and there was a river. And I said, and then I found out you could have 65 girls on a rowing team. And I said, this makes sense. And this helps with our title nine numbers. And so we added rowing and all four have been very successful and, uh, and continue to be funded at, at that level. And I think that's important. So we now have, 11 sports for women and nine for men. And with the numbers of adding rowing, which is not completely comparable to football in numbers, but it comes close. And so those are the, those were my rationale because the law said you should have equal number of scholarships and equal number of participants as compared to your student body. And we've always been close to 50, 50, 55, 45, or something in that realm. But I think it's real important Another question, Catherine, that I get asked now that we're celebrating 50 years, would you have done anything different as you as you supported for women? And I think I would. In fact, I tried at that time. 
because you know sometimes this move hurt the men's Olympic sports because they nobody wanted to cut football scholarships. That was that was the the king that nobody wanted to touch. But you could take a base baseball scholarships, track scholarships from the men. So now the women have more scholarships. For example, in tennis, women's tennis has more scholarships than men's. And uh, baseball, to me, was cut way too too much. And uh, so if I had life to do over, I would try to do it without cutting those sports, try to increase the women. And um, in fact, I, I tried because I what I said, the men have 95 football scholarships. I said, let, let's let them have 95. That that's you know that's a huge sport and a big injury, etc. But let's only count 70 of them towards our Title IX numbers, and then we could have let baseball and some of those keep their other. And I hope sometime I think the landscape is changing a lot in college sports right now, and maybe that's something we can reconsider and make it happen. Maybe I'm it's kind of near to my heart because I have a grandson that's going to be a freshman pitcher at the College of Charleston on the baseball team. And, you know, he said, Grandy, why don't we have as many scholarships as everybody else? I said, well, it's partly Grandy's fault and this is why. But I I really feel like if we could get to our coaches the number of scholarships that they think they need to compete, I think we would be more successful there. Yeah, that makes sense. What are uh what are the things that you see that still need to happen, right? Obviously, we saw a few years ago in the NCAA the difference in the weight room. Yeah. The Sedona Princess yeah. showed that to us. Uh, and they're still like we know often women still aren't treated equally. Mm-hmm. Even I, I, I think we've made a lot of progress, but I think the awareness is the more we can make people aware that thing, the thing with the locker room was really not an intentional thing. It just happened and nobody paid any attention to it. You know, if I'd walked in and Tennessee had been there, I would have simply said, this is not successful. This is not right. Let's get it fixed. And so, but we need that awareness and we need, and so I would think to continue, I love the number of sports that we have on television. I think our television contracts continue to bid. And with all the streaming people are doing now, I think that's that's really, really important. And I think we can, we can get all of that visibility. Uh, I I think we're getting more and more women, the percentage of women coaching women is important. And I think that has happened because we have a lot more qualified women, you know, they've come up through the program, they've competed, they're out there ready to, to coach at the highest level. And I can see that happening. I love the, um, the pro sports that are happening for women because you want them to have the same opportunities for postseason. I hope we can get more money into the pro sports than, than they're there right now. I think the equal pay, for example, the, the, the soccer, the World Cup soccer and all of that is, is working. But I just think I would want even more emphasis on awareness would be, you know, there's not much technical stuff that needs to be happening. Just the awareness of what's happening and be sure we don't stump our feet anywhere. Yeah, that makes sense. So we talked a lot about the media coverage, even in, um, you know, in triathlon and some of the sports that a lot of our audience is involved yeah. in, of um, making sure there's equal coverage for men and women on the media, and uh, you know, just all, all those pieces. Um, yeah, you know, I can remember in, uh, when I first started coaching in Charleston, going down to the local newspaper, the sports editor, 
and saying, you know, I'm, I'm out here trying to recruit the best basketball players in South Carolina. And I pick up your paper and you have a nice article about the men. And then at the bottom, it says, and the girls also won. I said, that does me no good in recruiting. I need to know who played, who scores and all of that. So I think that, that that's important in lots, lots of different ways. I think the landscape of college athletics has changed. I think you're going to see more of, of your uh, Olympic sports. I think you're going to see more of the uh, sports like cycling and the triathletes and because people are, are really interested in that. Fitness is such a thing right now. I think it's very, very important that that happens. And with, you know, it doesn't have to be in the hard newspaper. We, we've got so much. We all get our news from the from our computers and our iPhones and our iPads and those kind of things. So there's really not any reason to not promote both men and women and, and the accomplishments. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, we look at title nine and the work that went into the sports like basketball and all those things that really opened the door for women, for the participation sports that we're in for women yes. to go, Oh, I can do those things too. Like I can, I can be a runner. I can be a triathlete or I can be a cyclist. Um, because before, like you said, there were options. I, I think we can continue to be feisty. Does that, uh, I love does it. That kind of ring a bell for, for your company there. But I do think we need, we need that opportunity. And you look at all the young ladies out there. Um, I'm, I'm going on, on Wednesday to the state tennis tournament in, in Tennessee uh, because I've got a freshman granddaughter that's going to be playing. And there'll be a lot, lots of folks there to watch that. And I, I just think the opportunity to compete at whatever level, whatever sport is so important that women have that opportunity. Well, just to close us out, what would you tell our listeners? Like, what are um, if you had some advice for them to continue this legacy? What What would your advice be to our listeners? You know, I, I think, um, gosh, that's that's a great question. You know, one of my um, <clears throat> my daughters gave me a little bracelet that says "chin up," and because I'm always telling them, "Don't put your chin down, put your chin up." And uh, I think we need to continue to hold our heads high at what we've done and how we've done it and continue to go forward, not, not backwards and uh, be proud and continue. You mentioned earlier about women supporting women, continue, you know, uh, to pat your daughters and your granddaughters on the shoulder and say, man, this, this is awesome. And give them the same feedback that we do. Cause if we went to, I would say if we went to take, I'll just use 60 as a cutoff. We went to all the 60-year-old successful men and you said, why are you successful? A lot of them would say, well, I played football. I played on the baseball team. I learned all of that. And not many of those women had have that opportunity. So as we go forward, I think we need to really capitalize on the opportunity. The Women's Sports Foundation said that 95% of the women sitting in the sea chairs in Fortune 500 companies participated in athletics. And I just think it is such a great tool to teach people to be successful. I always say to be successful, you have to be competitive. Now that doesn't, I, and when I'm speaking, especially to women's group, I say that doesn't mean you have to be athletic. It means you have to be competitive, but there's not a better way to teach people to be competitive than athletics. You can learn 
by being competitive in debate and tap dance and all of those other things. But boy, sport is volume with the with the sport is sport is life with the volume turned up. Wow. I love that. Well, Joan, thank you so much for all the things that you have done uh, thank you. over your lifetime. And uh, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate y'all telling the stories because there's so many stories about women who didn't get the opportunity and how proud they are now of that happening. And I think we just, this being the 50 year anniversary, it's nice to sit back and say, job well done but let's not stop. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So Celine, this morning, I listened to that this morning to prepare for us to do our, our intro and our outro here. And I was, as I was walking to work then afterwards, I was literally using Joan's advice about, <laughs> about the three C's. Cause you know how she had that advice that she thought that like, you know, she said it a number of times about how sport teaches us to compete. And then she thought that those were like, valuable skills for life. And the three C's were like, you need to learn to compete, communicate and, and be confident in what you're doing mm -hmm. in order to succeed. And she specifically like re was relating it to business, you know? Um, and I, I had a couple of thoughts about it. Like one, I was like trying to rank myself and our business, like in relation, to, <laughs> in relation to these three C's. But I also had this thought about how, you know, we, like, I think in the last few years, we've kind of like as a society or North America shied away from this idea that like competition is good. Right. You know, like the participation trophy thing. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hearing her say like, I think it's important for like women specifically to learn how to compete so that we can be competitive in life. I'm like, hell's yes. Like that's what, that's what I thought. And then I was like, what does it mean for, you know, what would it, what does it mean for us and for feisty to win in business, for example, right. you know? And then I said, it, and then like, I don't, I won't let, I won't rant on about all, all of the individual thoughts I had, but really like how the ways in which that really does work, like how sport you know, how in business, I'm like, well, in business, everyone can win. That was one of the things I thought, but then I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's even true. Right. Like, actually, I think sometimes like we know that Coke or Pepsi had to win. Right. That's... <laughs> and somebody had to come second. Yes. Right. But there's more room on the podium, perhaps, you know, and there's more room for like cheering other businesses on. Um, and I like, like, all like with us all rising together, like with other businesses working in similar space, et cetera. Like I love partnerships and working together, but there is still that need to be like competitive enough to be like, Hey, we can get in there and do it. Totally. And that's, I, I and I'm yes. Cause I, it's funny. Cause I had, when she said that I was like, because there's, um, you know, there, there's positive and negatives to being competitive, right? You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's the, well, you're just the first loser kind of competitive nature, which is I bristle from, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, but then to your point, but you need to be somewhat competitive to even, to even think that you have a shot at getting attention or getting people to buy your thing. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that that there's a competitive nature to that, that is broader that we, that you do learn in sports because you learn that a game well played is still rewarding. And that, you know, that, that if mm -hmm. you do things well and you follow the process, you're still rewarded with best performances. Right. Even right. if that, even if you aren't Coke, you know, any like or whatever, or not on the first step, 
maybe that's a hundred percent okay. And you, you still achieve, you know, you've still achieved something that is important. And that's how like that sat with me. And I was like, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, absolutely. And the same thing, like the thing you learn in sport where it's like for a thousand losses, there's one win. Yes. Kind of thing, you know, like there's a lot of lose and learn. Right. But (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I think people, I think what people get turned off is that, um, is the lose word, the loser word, the Mm -hmm. loss word, you know, because that can feel absolute like, well, Mm -hmm. that was a loss, you know, as opposed to that was still an achievement that didn't perhaps get me the first step, but it is still a grand achievement that I'm still making this great living and our company is awesome. Do you know, like, and that you can still have room to approve. So I think that that's because. Yeah, absolutely. And then especially to imbalance with the other, like the compete one stood out to me just because I'm aware of like our social kind of shying away from it. Um, but also like communication in balance with good communication, which have just been through, you know, two years of, of a growing team and learning to communicate in, in ways that I didn't even know where to start. Yeah. 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 And, and then also like being confident in what you're doing. I think that like you and I can probably both relate to that in terms of like, actually, like, I think we both do like, feel like, okay, I feel confident that we're overall that we're doing the right thing. We're headed in the right direction, you know, and part of it probably does come from the fact that I, that I come from sport. Oh, yeah. It transcends. There's no doubt. And that, you know, she had a, she had a lot to say about that and she lives that. And I think that, um, that is a very big takeaway of this series is that without title nine, women don't get that transcendent opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So next week, Celine, if you did the interview for next week, tell us what we can look forward to. I did. I talked to Marianne Martin, who was the first winner of the Tour de France Feminine, um, which ran alongside the men's Tour de France race from 1984 to 1989. And it's really interesting to have this conversation now because uh, that Tour de France for women is returning this year. Hmm. Well, I look forward to that. And I look forward to the interview next week. Excellent. Nine Voices for Title IX, powered by Inside Tracker, is a feisty media production. This episode was produced and edited by the amazing Amelia Perry.